Well, when I was thinking through this sermon series last summer, uh, I originally intended to work through chapters 13 through 17, and that's it, and just stop right there. But uh, what I thought would take me three months has gone a little bit longer than that. And given that American life revolves basically around the school calendar, it feels a little awkward uh, to start a brand new series at the end of February. So I'm just going to keep going uh, in the book of John. It's still a pretty good book if you keep, keep reading. And, and so chapters 18 through 21, at least in my view, are still very much about the master, that is Jesus, and how we his disciples are to live in light of him. So this week we come to chapter 18 and to Jesus's betrayal and his arrest. We pick it up at verse one. Let me read for us. When Jesus had spoken these words, that is the prayer we've been working through for the last several months, he went out with his disciple across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this word, for it is life-giving, for it is true, for it points us to the one who is and was and will be. Lord, we give you thanks for Jesus, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. We, of course, think of all those Christians across the world, our brothers and sisters, no matter their race or their gender or where they may be, their nationality, who belong to you, and they are our brothers and sisters. We think of our brothers and sisters in this country, of course, who are suffering, and those who are in China, but, of course, our minds are drawn to Ukraine right now. So we pray for that country that is war-torn like so many other countries in this world, that you would be in and amongst, and we pray for peace. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, to the typical modern reader, when we read texts like this one, well, we tend to read them flatly, as if they were merely historical reports like any other work of modern historiography. And while the Gospels are at least a, a, a historical report. Details like Jesus' preference for this garden, for example, are not merely reports on where the events happened. These details matter for understanding what's at stake in the moment and getting a much fuller picture of what's happening. So Jesus, like the prophets before him, was purposefully symbolic. 
And what I mean by that is his choices and his actions purposefully fit with and they link to other events in Israel's history and in the Old Testament. That's why the crowds, for example, were right when they saw Jesus' following in the pattern of Elijah or Jeremiah. It's why the Sermon on the Mount purposely links to the giving of the law on Mount Sinai with Moses. You, you were supposed to see that and see, oh, Jesus is a better Moses. So, for example, Jesus' very first sermon was the announcement that the Jubilee of Isaiah 61 had been fulfilled in him. And in turn, he lived like it was the Jubilee. It's why his, his opponents and critics called him a glutton and a drunk. And even John the Baptist's disciples who believed in Jesus, they wondered why Jesus acted the way he did. And what they missed was that the Son of God had brought that promised jubilee into existence. Jesus' life was a lived symbol of the greater reality of what God was and is doing in the world, and his choices and his actions reflected all of that. That Jesus repeatedly chose this garden then is purposeful, and not just because he happened to like it. For example, this is the very spot where Jesus would ascend into heaven, and, and that matters. We tend to rush right over the ascension into heaven. We tend to go his death and his resurrection to kind of stop there. His ascension into heaven matters because as Zechariah 14 puts it, the day of the Lord when God would begin to take back the nation starts from that very spot when the Son of Man ascends into heaven. So Jesus, as the new and better Adam, treated this garden as a symbolic Eden where he communed with his father. And just as Adam and Eve were intended to go out from the garden sanctuary and bring God's image and dominion over all of creation, so Jesus begins to take back the world from this very spot. Further, when you take the gospel accounts together in this garden sanctuary, Jesus faced the same temptation as Adam of breaking faith with God. Now, the focus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when you look at their accounts of this, of this, this moment, they focus on Jesus's prayer for deliverance from the cup of wrath. John doesn't mention that at all. He focuses on Jesus's prayer with his disciples before he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane. But unlike Adam, when we look at the whole of the gospel accounts, no matter what, facing that temptation, Jesus desired to do God's will, to trust his Father's word, even unto death. So what I'm saying here is we are meant to see this moment in the Garden of Gethsemane in light of Genesis 2 and 3 in the Garden of Eden. And just like with Genesis 3, there is a snake here too. In my view, Genesis 3 indicates that Adam and Eve not only recognized the serpent, they knew him. Think about it. If a stranger came up to you and started calling into question your relationship to your parents or your spouse, would you listen to that person? Probably not. You, you would dismiss them as a crazy person maybe and just, you'd, you'd walk away. You, you wouldn't have anything to do with them. But what if it was someone you knew? You would probably be caught off guard, but you would, of course, 
defend your spouse or your friend or whatever. But if the friend persisted and called into question what you thought you knew, do you think you might start to waver a little bit? Besides, I think most people, like say Balaam and his talking donkey, would be more than a little surprised if a snake started speaking to them, in particular with such a sophisticated question. Personally, I I think the snake is more than a snake. And we know from the New Testament's reading of the Old Testament that the Satan, the accuser of God's people, at the very least stood behind the snake. So whether it was an, an actual snake or perhaps, as some scholars argue, a cherubim, and the cherubim were the guardians of God's throne room and are sometimes described as fiery like serpents, like what we see in Isaiah 6 or even with the dragon of Revelation 12. Either way, whether it's an angel or an actual snake, it is clear that Genesis 3, like John 18, is about an intimate betrayal of the Son of Man. Judas knew where Jesus liked to go. Like the serpent, he knew where Jesus went to find sanctuary and to commune with God the Father. And of course, the reason Judas knew this, like the serpent of Genesis 3, is that he had been right there. He had been right there beside him. Now, we read in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that that Judas betrayed Jesus with the symbol of friendship and brotherhood at that time, which would have been a kiss on the cheek. And you can still see this in some cultures where people kiss each other on, on, on their cheeks. For us, uh, it would be as though Judas said, listen, the one whom I give the bear hook, The one I give the bear hug to, he's the one you're after. So instead of kissing the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled, blessed are all who take refuge in him, which is Psalm 212. Judas kissed the son and betrayed him to death with the hopes of short-term riches because he refused to find life in him. And this betrayal initially comes across as friendship and as brotherhood. Just as a serpent seems to have Adam and Eve's best interests at heart, but it ends in death. Or so Judas, you know, like like the group he led to Jesus, that's what they hoped, that this would all end in tears and death. Now, already from John chapter one, we've had the hint of the forces of darkness massing against God's Messiah. Just think about John 1. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's cosmic battle. And we saw that last week when we looked at those final verses of Jesus' prayer when he, he prays to his Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you sent me. That's talking about darkness, that the world was in darkness and so few knew the true light. Well, with verse three, the image of darkness warring against the light really comes into full focus. Now, the English text reads, as a band of soldiers and some officers of the chief priests and Pharisees showed up to arrest Jesus. And I I did this this test with... with, uh, uh, the men's study on Wednesday morning. To most readers, and this, this was certainly me, until I started really digging in with this text this week, 
What do you imagine when you read that? When you read that, that, that phrase? Probably you imagine a, a small group, maybe, I don't know, six to 15 people. Like I, I, I probably still have Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ in my head still. And, you know, it's, I don't know, 15, 20 people maybe. Well, when you look at what the actual Greek text says, it indicates that this was a cohort led by what is known as Achilliarchos. And Achilliarchos was a commander of a thousand soldiers. So that's a pretty high-ranking Roman officer, and typically a Roman cohort was 600 men. And even if it was a reduced version of a cohort, what is called a maniple, as, as some scholars think it might have been, it still would have been 200 men. So even if we assume that smaller number, and let's just assume it, what we have are a well-armed Roman soldiers numbered in the hundreds with Jewish leadership at their head, all being led by Judas, who, as John says in chapter 13, is at this point an agent of Satan. So you should see this as the army of darkness arrayed against the Son of Man with human agents serving as proxies for spiritual ones. Now, the details about lanterns and torches, I think are supposed to give the impression, considering really the overall theme of light and darkness that John uses here, and he does it again in 1 John 2, that though Rome, for example, claimed to be the light of the world, these were false lights, and they looked pitiful in comparison to the true light. More so, though, the darkness had come bearing its strongest weapons against God's anointed. Well, John tells us that Jesus knew everything that was about to happen to him. So if ever there was someone in control of his circumstances, it's Jesus, right? We, this goes back to our confession of sin. We are always trying to be in control of our circumstances. We're not. Jesus was in control of his circumstances. He's not responding to the situation. He's not playing chess against a formidable opponent. No, he's the one who made the chessboard and he set the pieces in place. So he comes out to what appears from, from human perspective as a menacing show of force, which it is. And he says, whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answers with, I am. Now, most English translations insert an extra pronoun, as in, I am he, which is perfectly acceptable given the grammar. So if someone said to me, are you Rob Fawcett? I, I wouldn't just say, I am. I'd say, yeah, I am he. I, I'm the guy. You can read it that way, and that, that's fine. But it is clear by the group's reaction that Jesus has not merely answered their question. Now think back to, for example, Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush. The name God gives to Moses is Yahweh, which is the great I Am. It is the very same name that Jesus uses here, only it's in Greek, ego I me, I Am. This isn't the first time Jesus has answered this way. In John chapter 8, in answering a crowd's accusation that he was both a Samaritan and demon-possessed, he says, before Abraham was, 
I am. And in response, the crowds didn't just say, oh, he's just, he's just calling himself, hey, I hear it. No, in response, they go to get stones to stone him to death. Why? Because they knew Jesus was claiming to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the very same God who revealed himself to Moses as Yahweh. So here he does the same thing. He does the same thing, and he demonstrates his power and control of the situation through merely mentioning his name. And it literally forces a cohort of the strongest army on earth at that time to its knees. Again, get the image. Bare minimum, 200 soldiers, well-armed. There's Jesus, and he says, ego I me, and they hit the deck. They can't help it. They hit the deck. What can battle-hardened, sword-wielding soldiers do against a person who can force them into submission with a word? But it's more so as Isaiah 45 and Romans 14 say, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. All people will one day bow the knee to the king, either from a position of joy and loyalty or from a position of defeat. So it's either going to be with, with happiness or with a gnashing of teeth and tears. The God who made the heavens and the earth through the word of his mouth is most revealed in his son who is the king of kings and lord of lords. And this moment, this moment should have caused the instant repentance of everyone there. But of course, it does not. The darkness cannot comprehend the light. It's perhaps why Jesus asked them a second time who they're looking for, and they ask him again if he is Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I already told you who I am, and if I'm the one you want, then let these men go, and they obey him. You know, we're so used to this kind of thing in the movies where the hero stands up, says, I'm the one you want, but let my people go, and they say, great, we'll do that. Nobody does that. The Romans, there's no way they do that. No, what they typically do is we'll take you and kill all the rest. That's what they typically do. But no, in this case, they obey him. I mean, if you know anything about how the Romans operated, they're they're just not doing this. But at Jesus's command, they obey. John tells us this was to fulfill what Jesus had just prayed earlier, but really sometime earlier that he had not lost one of those that God gave to him. And it's an indication that Jesus, despite how the darkness perceived him, despite how the darkness is arrayed against him, is all-powerful, and he chose this path. And he chose it out of love for his father and for his people. Now, as an aside, you know, looking back at this moment, as believers, you know, we, we can see just how powerful Jesus is, but if we were in that moment, if we were witnesses to that moment, who would we actually think appears strong? Despite, you know, putting the cohort on its knees, if we're taking a frank look at ourselves, an honest assessment of ourselves, it's probably not going to be Jesus. We would probably explain it away, just as the crowds and Jewish leadership did with Jesus's miracles throughout his ministry. 
No, really from a human perspective, which we, we all still struggle with a sinful human perspective, it's Judas who looks to have the upper hand, leading the servants of the high priest and the Pharisees, which, by the way, that represented the Jewish elite together with the influential grassroots conservatives, all while backed with Roman might. But let's put it in different terms, just so we can kind of get at this. As you know, Russia has invaded Ukraine, and I'm sure you've seen you know, images or videos of the power of the Russian military under the command of Vladimir Putin, who himself, talk about a self-confident man, right? You're a fool if you, do, if you think they're powerless. Of course they're powerful. Of course they're powerful. And amidst those images and videos, I saw a video of a Christian family, and maybe you saw it too, of a Christian family in a small apartment in Kiev, I think it was in Kiev, singing hymns together as they waited what comes next. So what appears stronger? A family singing hymns? Yes, they're defiant, but does that really look strong? Or Vladimir Putin and his war machine? I mean, if you had to bet on a winner, are you going with hymns or tanks? Martin Luther talks about the difference between a theology of glory and a theology of the cross, and I think it's absolutely relevant to this. A theology of glory looks to the pursuit of human achievement or power for its glory. It's like the Tower of Babel or the Roman Empire or the Russian Empire or the Russian military, which wants to be an empire. It's the elevation of my name or my team or my nation. It's, as we said with the confession of sin, it's the self trying to sustain itself. Look at what we've done. Look at who I am. I'm better than that guy, whatever it may be. A theology of the cross does not seek power for itself. It does not seek after its own glory. It looks to God for everything. And like Jesus gladly accepts the last place. Singing to God in a war zone to the world seems like utter folly. And it is folly. It is an utterly hopeless and stupid thing to do if true power is found in the strength and glory of men. But if true power resides with God, it's wisdom. It's wisdom. Jesus in his preparation, think about this, Jesus in his preparation to meet the forces of darkness head on chose to pray. He chose to pray. When Jesus is most candid about himself, he describes himself as gentle and lowly. So he's, he's no bare-chested Putin riding on horseback, if you've ever seen that image. In the place where we see God in all his glory, most clearly displayed is when Jesus is nailed to the cross. It's like what John Stott once wrote. He said, we may speak of Alexander the Great and Charles the Great, that is Charlemagne, and Napoleon the Great, but not Jesus the Great. He is Jesus the only. He has no peers. Now, the world, of course, completely scoffs at that notion. Jesus the only? Really? Yeah, really. We know better. 
The one through whom and for whom all things were made was born of a woman, died a shameful death, giving his life as a ransom for many. And as we discussed last, last week, we will see his blindingly radiant glory when we see him face to face. But we have already seen his glory in his life giving death on the cross. If you want to see what the true king looks like, what did we profess together? Philippians 2. That is what the true king looks like. This leads us to Peter. Peter, in, in what is a moment of what I think is probably false bravado, pulls out a sword and swings it at the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear in the process, which tells me Peter is not that proficient with a sword. Now, I, I'm not sure what, what motivated Peter uh, he had earlier insisted that he would die for Jesus. And maybe in that moment, having seen Jesus put the soldiers on their knees, he thought, this is the right time, y'all. Jesus is on the move. This is the right time to fight for the kingdom. And we know from the gospel accounts taken together that Jesus heals that man and in turn calls out Peter. In John's account, he calls out Peter like he did in Matthew 16 for getting in the way of what Jesus came to do. And if we read John 18, uh, in light of Matthew 16, Peter was again trying to hinder Jesus from going to the cross, even as Judas was pushing Jesus to that cross. Neither Peter or Judas could comprehend what going to the cross would actually do, and both men saw dying at the hands of worldly power as defeat. In Matthew's account, Jesus tells Peter to put away his sword for, for two additional reasons. One, those who live by the sword die by the sword. And two, Jesus could appeal to his father at any time and he would have had more than 12 legions of warrior angels fighting for him. So it, it goes without saying that, that no human army could, even the Romans could withstand the spiritual forces of God. Let alone, Jesus didn't need the help. He made the angels. He didn't need the help. If Jesus wanted to wage world war as the world does, he could have. Wouldn't have been hard. But then he would be no different from Rome or Russia. You know, for Peter to take up a sword was to take up the posture of the world, and the world cannot bring about peace through violence. It cannot bring about the kingdom of God through the sword. Now, violent resistance can of course, stop violence for a time. And like what we see in Russia, it is sometimes necessary, but humanity has never been able to bring about real peace. Sorry, John Lennon, it just hasn't. It's not in our nature. Peter wasn't defending Jesus. Maybe he thought he was trying to, but he wasn't. No, he was acting like a violent revolutionary akin to Barabbas. Again, is there a place for standing and fighting against tyranny and oppression? Yes, but this was not it. So for example, you've probably seen this too. There's been a video going around of a young man kissing his wife and children goodbye as he was sending his family out of harm's way and he was enlisting to fight. And it wasn't kind of a chest pumping, red blooded 1980s movie about fighting the commies. 
No, the young man was tearful because he knew what was at stake and he did not. He did not want to leave his family. He did not want to go fight, but he still enlisted. That's what courage looks like. That's what courage looks like. And as we have talked about in our men's study for months now, the mark of godly masculinity doesn't look like an action hero. An action hero is just a fiction. It looks like using whatever strength or authority we have been given by God in order to give ourselves away for the sake of another. That's why Paul in Ephesians 5 compares the role of husbands to the sacrificial self-giving of Jesus for his church. Now, I know I'm highlighting men, but women are called to do this too. All Christians are called to the self-giving of our lives for the sake of another And it's like what Ray Ortland commented. He said, the people of Ukraine are giving a precious gift to the whole world, living proof that cynicism is empty. Cowardice is contemptible. And courage for what's right is deeply thrilling. But sometimes, like Jesus, it means enduring with violence. Sometimes it looks like enlisting to fight against an invasion. Sometimes it looks like a family singing hymns in their apartment. And by the way, both are deeply courageous acts. Jesus's point, and this is on full display with the cross, is that his kingdom is not of this world. Otherwise, as he later tells Pilate, his armies would be wiping out everyone in their path because that's what worldly powers do. Jesus did not come to conquer the world, but to save it. He did not come to burn it down, but to redeem it. He loves, he loves to turn his enemies into his family. Just go read Ephesians 2. That's a love letter of what, how God loves humanity. It's like what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12. But Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power, that is Jesus's power, is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I, Paul, will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses. Listen to this. This is so anti-American, I don't even know how to start. Listen, he says, for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Why? For when I am weak, then I am strong. In himself, is it the self that sustains itself? No, in Christ. It's in Christ. You know, I take Paul to be one of the most courageous men in history. And his strength, like the family singing hymns, was found in Christ alone. And he learned this, this this disposition, this way of life from the master himself, Jesus, who himself, Jesus, put his hope and his faith in God alone. May we do the same. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you are good. Your steadfast love endures forever. Our strength is in Christ. Our hope is in Christ. We come to see our weaknesses for what they are. Things that point us to how good you are and how you are with us. 
I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.